Let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. George Mueller is a guy that would go on in his life to care for over 10,000 orphans. He would establish, catch this number, 117 schools, many of them serving particularly orphan children. But before all that, he was a schoolboy that had the heart of a thief. His father was a taxman for the Prussian government, and he would have large sums of money sitting around his house. And young George, the oldest son of this father, would sometimes help himself to the money, reasoning that it would be better for him to have it and all the things he could dream up of ways to use that money than the Prussian government that doesn't really need that much. Well, his father got a sense that some money was missing, and so he actually set up a trap for his boy. Because he would go to his boy, and George would swear up and down, I didn't touch the money, I didn't do it, Father. And so he set up a trap by having some coins on a desk, and he called him into his study, and he pretended to leave for a moment, came back, and some coins were missing. He counted it out right in front of his son. Well, his young son had taken a few coins and slipped them into his sock when his father had stepped out of the room. So he asked his son about the missing money, said, I didn't take it. Lied, bold-faced lie, right to his dad. His dad said, empty your pockets. So George took his pockets and showed him that they were empty. Then he said, take off your shirt. And this went on, and he stripped his son down. And when he had him take off his socks, George said he carefully uh, you know, held the coins so they wouldn't make noise, and he set them off to the side. Well, his father finds the money. And while he's getting beaten from his father for his crime, in his head, here's what he's thinking. I will never, ever do this again. But, here's what his brain's thinking. Not, I'm never going to steal again, because I love doing that way too much. I will never get caught again. He said he made a vow to himself that day, I'm never going to get caught again, because this is so painful. But it didn't even dawn on him to stop stealing. Fast forward a few years. He's 16 years old. He's coming home from his boarding school, coming, coming back home. And on his way home, he doesn't make a direct trip. He tells his father, I've been asked to sing in a choral group, so I'll be a couple of extra weeks. And in the meantime, he stiffs a couple of expensive hotels for a week at a time of the bill by staying there, promising his father would pay, and then leaving. As he's climbing out the second hotel, he gets caught. He spends Christmas and New Year's in jail as a 16-year-old kid. Now, it's exciting to any of you who have kids who feel like they're going off the rails a little bit, they're starting to get a little bit wild, like Christopher Barber here in the, in the back, we're going to pray for him. Chris is a good kid, I'm kidding. Isn't it so encouraging to think that George Mueller, go to just Wikipedia, George Mueller, he was a man filled with faith, God used him in incredible ways, but his life story shows a few things. Was George deranged? Was he sick? Was he abused because his parents didn't take him to Disneyland enough? I don't know. Maybe all those things are true. But what I know of of, of him is this. He's a human being. And a human being, listen to this, living apart from the Spirit of God and dwelling that human being is living in the flesh. It's the state we're all born into. So George was just living out of the natural, born-into state that George was born into. George Mueller is all of us. At some point. The, the place we're going to in Romans is 
chapter 8, and it's one of my favorite chapters, if not my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. I'm getting giddy just thinking about getting to teach through it and study in it. But it says this in Romans 8, 7, that in the flesh we are actually incapable of submitting to God's word. We do not delight in the law of God. We're incapable of submitting to it. The story as old as time is breaking the rules. Think about the garden for a minute. How many thou shouts were there in the garden? There was one great big yes in paradise that God gave, and there was a thou shalt not, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch the fruit of that. One. One thou shalt not. That's a picture of where we're going this morning. How about the Ten Commandments given through Moses? The Ten Commandments are given, and what follows in the Scripture and in history and in our own lives is this. It's sort of a highlight reel for creative, law-shattering people. There's just an endless flow of how the Ten Commandments are broken. This is human history. Here's the really, really good news. Jesus came for lawbreakers. Are you excited about that? You should be. Because you're a lawbreaker. You've never met me. I know, but you're still a lawbreaker. Jesus came for lawbreakers. So today I want to look at this from Romans 7. That the law is both powerful and impotent. Through the Apostle Paul, God wants to teach us something about the law, about rules, and about boundaries. He wants to, he wants to set it in its proper place. He wants to set the law in its proper place. If laws become an idol, In your life, it will ruin you. Conversely, if laws and boundaries become the enemy in your life, that will ruin you as well. And so Paul's going to instruct us along these lines. You know, parenting, uh, some of us are parents in this room, and some of us hope to be parents one day, and some of us are parents still, but um, our kids live in a different state, so you're in a different season. So you'll have to, you know, go back in your mind a little bit. But especially parenting young children, it's like one long school day. It's like a school day that never ends. In this sense, it is filled with never-ending instruction. It's filled with, it's filled with boundaries and instruction. And a, and a hearty amen comes from both kids and parents. We're like, yeah, we see that. What's that all about? Boundaries are set up because parents love their children. Now, let's just say hypothetically that yesterday I was out with some of my kids. And let's say hypothetically that, um, pardon the crudeness of this in church, but bear with me, that we walk into the men's room, there's three urinals, two are tall, one is short. And let's say that hypothetically a six-year-old walked in ahead of me and was using one of the taller ones on his tippy toes, barely reaching. And let's say that the dad lovingly said, Hey, bud, next time use the small one. And little said six-year-old says, Nope, I got it. He didn't have it. It was making a mess. Let's say that hypothetically a few hours later, another young male who is potty training walks into a bathroom. Same dad is there, and we walk into the stall, and we have some basic rules. Don't touch the seat. Yucky. We get the paper. We put the paper on. Climb up on the seat to steady themselves. The paper has moved, and now hands are on the seat, bracing and rubbing around. Remember, don't touch the seat. There's always a lag with three-year-olds. You throw them a ball, it hits them in the face, and then they go like this. 
Well, there was a lag, but there was obedience. It was great. Don't touch the seat. Oh, yeah. So he grabs hypothetical dad's arms, and there's wetness on my arm now. Um, life is just ongoing. Now, progress, right? Because there was obedience. It was delayed. There was obedience. Um, but, but this is, this is, yeah, people in the back laughing because they're like, I remember these days and I'm glad I don't have urine on my arm. Um, but this is parenting, right? There's just, there's a non-stop stream of information and correcting and channeling and modeling and redirecting and all the things that parents do. They fall into bed at night and they wake up and it starts all over again, right? Why are all these boundaries? Why are these um, you know, conversations happening because parents love their kids. God is our heavenly father. And I know for some people, your life story is that God's had to do a real work to redeem the picture of father because your earthly father wasn't so hot. God is our heavenly father. He loves us infinitely. Anything we do as parents, fathers and mothers, we do as the dim shadow of what God does perfectly. And think about this. In paradise, God sets up a boundary. God gives very clear instruction in paradise to Adam and Eve. These aren't prison bars that keep them from having fun. It's actually a fence that keeps them from certain death. Some of you are, are in the baby gate phase. And baby gates, the moment you put them up, there's a point very soon after where they're tested, shaked, rattled, and there's a little thought process going on in your little precious angel going, who on earth put this here? Why is my freedom being limited? And again, you have put that up as a parent, not to keep them from fun, but quite possibly to keep them alive, right, at the top of a staircase and to keep them from falling down. Wet paint. Uh, this is what we're looking at this morning. You know, when, when you see a sign like this, don't touch, no trespassing, please don't touch the pony, you know, whatever the sign is, um, there is something in human nature that says, you know, that that's for other people. Wet paint, do not touch. For some reason, in many people's minds, this must be verified. You come up, and it's not because it's any of your business whether the paint is wet. It's not because you're necessarily an expert on the moisture content of paint. But there's something in human nature that says, oh, really? it really doesn't look that wet. It's so shiny. And you touch it and you go, why didn't someone warn me? My finger has paint on it now. Right? I mean, this is, this is sort of the process of signs like this. To get our heads kind of in the space where, where Paul was at, we sort of need to, um, we sort of need to do a little bit of work. At least I did. Maybe, maybe you'll need this as well. Um, you know, attitudes toward law and boundaries sort of morph over time, and they certainly morph from place to place. If you've traveled a bit, you know that there's just a different attitude toward law and boundaries depending on where you go. The, the, the United States of America has a tendency, we are moving rapidly, sort of being against the law, right? We're, we're a nation of laws, clearly, and that's something that's been, uh, been sort of at the core of our, of our identity. But in the news every single day, law enforcement uh, and rules are, are constantly being um, fought against. I think about schools and work and politics and morality. The laws of the harvest say this, that if you plant in one season, you'll always harvest in a different season. That means there is a space of time that goes on. And when you plant the seeds of individualism, 
you reap a harvest like what we're seeing today, which is very much like our study in the book of, of, of Judges. We live in a land of presidents. Everyone is the president, and they do as is right in their own eyes. We just see that on a regular basis. If you plant the seed that absolute truth is dead, there should be no shock at reaping the harvest eventually of anarchy. Right? Because anarchy, um, in, in essence, is the absence or non-recognition of authority. So we are reaping a harvest here in the States, at least, of a lot of things that have been planted for a long season of time. There shouldn't be shock at what we're seeing. Now, most civil Americans don't take it this far, but in our hearts, do we see the same sort of things that we see played out by people who are a little bit more extreme on the screen? See if you track with any of this. A lot of our stories and movies have people who bend and break the rules as the hero. They're the ones who, they, you know, rules were set, authority said some things, but they knew the better way and we cheer them on. We say things like this, you know, some rules were made to be broken. Here's our logic for that. That is the ones that I don't particularly like. <laughs> Those are the ones that are made to be broken, right? Ones that protect my property or my physical well-being or my kids' well-being, well, those should be hard and fast. No one should be breaking those rules. But when it's a rule you don't like, you say some rules are made to be broken. You may have thought this in your mind. You know, rules don't apply to me. Don't park. Don't touch. No trespassing. No flash photography. Uh, I was at a spring concert this last week at Willow Glen Middle School for my, my little elementary school kids. And, uh, you know, no flash photography is for everyone else, right? But I use flash photography responsibly. So I didn't do it, but kindergarten, we have psychotic parents who are there three hours early and get all the seats, and so they're filming every last second of their little angel, and even though it's not supposed to be done, the rules don't apply to them. Because, again, they know how to use it responsibly, and I'm sure that was for, for someone else. So this is sort of a mindset that we soak in. And even if I didn't just describe you, you've seen exactly what I just said. So that's sort of the American Western culture temperature about law. Now here's what I need you to do. I need you to just shift your brain and think about this. This is not how it was in the days that Paul was writing to Christians at Rome. Paul's own biography, which we can kind of see and kind of piece together from from different writings of his, um, describe his relationship to the law before Christ, and it meant the world to him. Paul thought, dreamt, ate, slept law. He thought about it all the time. The Jews were not only ag- not against the law, but they were in, string, in extreme favor for the law, and beyond that, they were hyper-focused on law enforcement. So much so that in some ways it became like a god to them. They served it, they thought about it, they looked to the law for their salvation. By New Testament times, Jewish rabbis had summed up scriptural law, catch this, in 613 commandments comprised of 248 mandates and 365 prohibitions, conveniently one for every day of the year in our calendar. Now, these mandates related to such things as worship, the temple, sacrifices, vows, rituals, donations, Sabbaths, animals used for food, festivals, community affairs, war, social issues, family responsibility, judicial matters, legal rights, and obligations, and slavery. The prohibitions related to such things as idolatry, historical lessons, 
uh, blasphemy, um, slaves, justice, and personal relationships. Now, if that isn't confusing enough, the rabbis came along and added endless conditions and practical interpretations. Do you see how following the law is like a full-time job? Do you see how heightened law and discussion and respect for the law was? This is the people that he's writing to. So we need to, as we read this passage, Romans chapter 7, we need to not import our view of law and boundaries into what's being written. We need to get into the context of how they would have seen and read it. So this morning, what Paul's going to do is answer two questions with his now familiar meganoita. And meganoita means may it never be. God forbid that that would ever be the case. And here's the two questions he's asking. In verse 7, is the law sin? And he says, Meganoita, may that never be, that is not true. And then in verse 13, did that which is good, meaning the law, bring death in me? And he gives the same answer. Meganoita, may it never be, that's not what's going on. Flip back to Romans 3 for just a second. It's important For me, as I was studying this, I thought, where have we already been with the law? What ground has Paul already covered? One of the challenges of preaching through a book of the Bible week by week by chunk is that we can lose track of where we've been. If this were just publicly read at a church service, there would be more flow to it. That's my encouragement to you. If you haven't taken me up on grabbing the first half of Romans, read Romans 1 through 8 sometime this week. Try doing it in one sitting. If you stink at staying focused and reading, listen to it. Put it on and just listen to Romans 1 through 8, those chapters, and just sort of catch the flow of it. You will see things and have things draw out um, that are really powerful. Here's where we've already been in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 19. Sorry. He says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He's going to touch on that point today. Verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Do you see sort of a a twofold thing here? He's saying, the law isn't going to save you. And again, if you get your mind in the headspace of the people Paul was writing to, that's huge news. You mean the 613 commands, the, the 365 prohibitions that I've carefully followed since the time I was 13, that's not going to save me? No. But right on the heels of saying the law's not meant to save you, right on the heels of that, he says the law and the prophets, they all bear witness to this. You don't throw the law out, but you don't get saved by the law. Look down in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? What do we stand on? He says it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This was mind-blowing for Jewish people back then and Gentiles back then. It is still mind-blowing for people today. Then I've been going to church my whole life, and for some reason, pastor, today I heard from the scriptures that God doesn't accept me based on stuff I have to keep doing. Is that right? That's right. Praise God that's right. 
That's called grace. When you hear the love of God and the grace, that's the, that's the covering of your sin. Your sin deserves the judgment that's spoken about in, in the scriptures, but you can't measure up. So God meets the demands in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is a little bit like a tennis match. Is the law good or bad? It's kind of going back and forth. Is the law good or bad is probably not even the best question here. There's sort of a complicated answer to that. We're going to get to a really simple answer, but is the law good or bad may not be the right question. It's a little bit like this. Is a blender good or bad? Well, it depends. A blender is good if, right? Here's what I want to do right now. I want to take this side of the room, and I want you to just genuinely think about this. This is not rhetorical, because I'm going to ask you for some responses. I want you to think up three creative evil uses for a blender. All right? That's what you're doing over here. You don't get to talk amongst yourselves. You just got to think, and then I'm going to call on you. Over here, I want you to think of three. Get creative here, okay? Three really good uses for a, for a blender. All right? You have three seconds. Go. All right. Who over here? Some of you I know. You're devious and creative. Just shout it out. Now's the time to do it. By, by show of hand, let me just see an answer. If you have an answer, Joey, give me one. Hamster. All right. We don't even need to fill in the rest of it because we're recording this, right? Hamster, blender, evil. What else? What's another one? Dog. Okay. It's a big blender. We're on an animal track now. Okay. What's one more? Yeah. Torture. Yeah. Using it for torture of some kind. See, um, wasn't that hard, right? I mean, it's kind of shocking how not hard it is to take a, a, a blender and use it for utter wickedness, especially to hamster owners right now. Okay. Um, give me some good uses. Three, three uses. Yeah, Daniel, go. Using it to make a pizza smoothie. Is that on this side? Or is that really good? Okay, I'll go with that. Yeah. Making a smoothie. That sounds amazing. One more. If your paper shredder breaks. That's exactly right. That's, that's really good. You don't want those documents out in the trash. That's really smart. You just blend them up. I, I never cease to amaze me of the creativity of this group. Um, so is the, is the blender good or bad? It depends. Is the law good or bad? Well, it depends. If it's used for its intended purpose, it's, it's glorious and good. If not, it can be extremely wicked. What is our relationship to the law so far? We just read that the law and the prophet are pointers to the way of God. Remember Jesus said, he didn't come to abolish the law, but what? Fulfill it. Yeah. Complete the circle. So we don't throw the law out on the one hand. How about this? No boasting in works, but also no overriding the law. No, no overthrowing the law and going into anarchy. You see sort of this pattern set up. From last week and, and the week before, we see that we're no longer enslaved to the law. We're no longer married to the law. Why? Because laws don't apply to dead people. And we've died with Christ. And we've died with Christ so that we can be married to another, so that we could belong to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now what he's going to do is this. Paul's going to swing back and answer this. So why the law? Why the law then? It may have seemed like he's been sort of negative toward it. He's going to say some things differently. What the law does, hear this, it does really, really well. 
And what the law was never intended to do, which we'll look at next week, it's the last part of Romans 7, it does terrible at. It will never fulfill those things. So Romans chapter uh, 7, verse 7, look at it with me. He says this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Meganoita, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. If you're taking notes, write this down. The first thing the law is really good at is it reveals sin. Some of you are sports fans. Right now, um, rough day for Sharks fans, but I'm a hockey fan, I'm a basketball fan. You step onto a basketball court and the lines around the basketball court, the lines for the free throw, these are things that define the game for us. Those lines are excellent at defining the field of play, right? That's a picture of the law. Clearly reveals in and out. Clearly reveals right and wrong. An interesting question to ask people is this. Hey, if you were to die tonight, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? And I think a vast number of people that get asked that say at least they're in the camp of, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure to I'm good to I'm solid. An interesting follow-up question is this, well, what, what percentage are you sure? And a lot of times people think about it for they go, you know, I think I'm like 99%. If you take that 1% and you begin to just kind of needle into that and you kind of begin to just if they're open to it, ask some follow-up questions about what that 1% represents, here's what you often will find. You will find someone who has misguided overconfidence. They have misguided overconfidence because they've misread the situation. Sometimes you'll hear this, God is a good and loving God, and I'm leaning on that. Is God good and loving? Yes. Do we get to make up the rules as to how we lean on that and how he dispenses that? Absolutely not. We're not the ones in authority. Sometimes people are overconfident, misguidedly, in all of the good that they've done or all the good that they've tried to do. I may not have pulled it off, but I've had the best of intentions. The law comes along and it smashes this sort of foggy unclarity that we have about our own goodness. And much to your shock, the first time that you see this, you are not that good. When you see God's character and God's perfect standard on display clearly in black and white, and you first come to really understand that, and God opens your eyes to that, you kind of look around and think, crud, I, I might be in real trouble here. I'm not that good. I thought I was doing good. I was pretty confident that I was good. Why? Because you were judging other people. You don't even know other people, by the way. So that misguided confidence is often in play. The law reveals sin. The law exposes that we aren't as good as we think we are in a very definitive kind of way. Someone told me this a long time ago. Read through the Gospels and watch Jesus extend grace to the humble and law to the proud. It's a pretty fascinating read. If you just look at Jesus, when he interacts with people, if someone comes to him filled with pride, you know what Jesus does? He extends law to them. If someone comes full of humility, knowing that they're a wretch, you know what he does? Extends grace to them. Read it for yourself. It's, it's powerful to see this. Let me give you one example. The rich young ruler comes to him. Famous story. Comes to him. And what does he say to Jesus? All these things I've kept from my youth. 
I've kept the law perfectly. He thought he was a perfectionist and he was nailing it. Law to the proud. This rich young man came to Jesus with misguided overconfidence and Jesus said this. All right, I've just got one more command for you. What was it? You tell me. What was it? Remember? Yeah, sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor. Here it is, just one more rule, just one. What is the young man's response? He goes away sad. What Jesus was doing is he was handing him in definitive, like a line on a basketball court, definitive definition of goodness and what's required by law so that the young man would see his desperate need. Man, I haven't fulfilled it. I can't do that. The young man goes away sad. We don't know that he ever returns to Jesus. The law is like light that exposes dust that's in the air. You kind of have a sense that dust is in the air, you're sneezy today or whatever. And man, when sunlight floods that room, you go, yep, there it is. It's definitively there. That's, that's the law. And apart from the light of God's law, we would be in the dark as to how far we fall short of his character and goodness. So then what he does is this. He gives a very specific example. He quotes the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Interesting that he picks thou shalt not covet. Covet's kind of an old archaic word. In case you're not up to speed, here's what it basically is. It's any unlawful desire. It's taking something that it could turn into lust. It could turn into something that you just, you can't get your mind off of. And it's going beyond what God has said yes to. And so you covet that thing. Why does he pick the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment is probably the most internal of all of the commands. You could kind of put on a show and seem like you are obeying the other ones, but who can read how much you covet? Isn't that internal? Here's what's fascinating about that command. Someone who might think they're doing okay with the law, Jesus removes in the Sermon on the Mount when he comes and gets to the heart of these kinds of teachings. And when you think about the two greatest commandments, think of how internal they are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How internal is that? And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. Who else can judge that? That's internal, right? Only you know as a measurement of how those things are going. So it is with his example of coveting. The real battle with sin is always internal. It's heart and mind where the fight of this rages. And the power of the law is to cut through the external show, even that you put on for yourself, and it gets right to the heart of the matter. And it exposes. And maybe for Paul, maybe for Paul, that was the commandment that said, man, I am a raging coveter. No one else knows it because I've got all the other 613 things all figured out and all my sides are covered. But no one sees the heart like the law that just laid me bare with a few words. I can't not covet. That's the power of the law. All right. The law does more than expose, though. It also provokes sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So law provokes 
sin. Here's three words that will kind of help you understand this, okay? Here they are. You may have said them. You may have had them said to you this week. Why should I? Why should I? That is often said in response to a direct command, a direct rule. And this may have gone on out of someone's mouth or out of your own mouth, or sometimes the body language is screaming, why should I? You would never outright say to your boss, why should I? But your body language to your boss says those three words very, very powerfully. You may not have even had a rebellious thought in your head at the moment, but the moment you're told, don't, do, there's something that wells up and says, why should I? Who are you to tell me that? That's the power of the law being seized by sin to provoke. So the law isn't sinful. Sin is sinful, but it hijacks the law. The law is sort of like a fob for sin. What's a fob? Who's up on military terms? Forward operating base. Okay, that's what that picture is right there. A forward operating base, we have these all over right now in different parts of the country. That is a sort of a beachhead. It's sort of a, a little area where you can launch expeditions. This word opportunity that we see two times in this passage in verse 8 and elsewhere, this word opportunity is the starting point or base of operations. And that's what sin does. Sin goes in and it finds the law, the commandment, and says that's where I'm going to set up camp. That's where I'm going to get the foothold. And from there, it launches out on all kinds of evil expeditions. You know, authority always has a dilemma. Do I give a specific law on this, or do I leave things alone? If you leave things alone, the person who you want to not go in that part of the garden, or whatever it might be, could say, look, you never told me. You never explicitly said, don't trample all of the tomato plants. Yeah, technically, you're right, I didn't. But then you know that the second you put up a sign clearly stating what you don't want to do, that those passing by that would maybe give no thought of trampling your tomato plant suddenly go, huh. And it begins to kind of stir things up. For years and years and years, I was a youth pastor, and I would take kids up during the summer to Hume Lake. And at the start of camp, Hume Lake always gave you the three M's, and they started off with the rules. They said, we have three rules at this camp. No missed meetings. We met morning and night for different Bible studies and stuff. No missed meals and no messing around. Now, you can kind of see that third one is a big umbrella that covers a lot of ground, huh? Here's what's interesting. Invariably, a handful of kids from our youth group would see those three things as their new checklist for camp. Hmm. I was already planning on missing meetings. I hadn't thought of missing meals, but I think I can pull that off. In fact, not only should I, you know, can, can I pull it off, I should, and it's my God-given right to pull that off. I will creatively find ways to miss meals. And messing around, huh, I wonder what that means. I'm going to try to find out. So, so there it is. That's the stated law, and there's something in the stated law that just incites in us this sense, and that's what sin is able to do in us, that it can grab the law and stir up things that we hadn't even considered in the past. So law stirs up sin in us. Look at verse 10. Sin also exploits the law and destroys the sinner. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. If you're a religious person, and you're self-righteous, the law destroys you. Listen to Paul. This is Paul's own biography, pre-Christ. It's found in Philippians chapter 3. He says this of himself. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That means all pro. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You almost get a sense that Paul could rattle off these things like it was on the tip of his tongue because that's what he identified himself. He's at a dinner party. Hey, who are you? What do you do? You really want to know? Here's my credentials. And he just rattles these things off. And if you want to go further, I've got my stats all written down. I'll let you know how blameless I am in regard to those 613 commandments. He was professional at being good. And where did it leave him? Here's what else he says. Empty, called it vain pursuit, said he considered it garbage, it left him dead. In Galatians 3, he says this, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would be by the law. You almost get a sense that Paul goes, Look, I've searched the world over. The Jews know about law. There is not a law that produces righteousness. I've tried it. I've tried it more than anyone I've ever met. It's not to be found in law. The the law arouses sin in us. This is why legalism never makes you more spiritual, but more sinful. Legalistic Christians form into legalistic churches. Legalistic churches don't grow, and they don't bear lasting spiritual fruit, and they have one more sort of underlying heartbeat to them, and that is that there's a heartbeat of pride. Sometimes it's a church that falls away from a once passionate, deep, sincere devotion to Christ. And they're constantly talking about the high standards they uphold and the great things that God's done through them in yesteryear. Perhaps the most destructive thing about legalistic people in churches is this. They are the last to know it. They're the last to know that they're dead legalists. Listen to Jesus' words in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Sardis. He says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. It's quite possible to belong to Jesus, to be married to Jesus, but to fall back into life and actions and motive as if you're married to law, as if you're getting something from that. Maybe your bent isn't law-keeping, but law-bending, law-questioning, law-breaking. The law is still crushing. Lawbreakers don't find fulfillment, but slavery, misery, and death. Some people, their life story is this. Man, I see a law, and I just push against it. I don't even know why I do it. I just do. comes back to not only being uh, that, that the law is not the problem, but sin's the problem. Look at this last thing. The law only amplifies just how dark sin is. Verse 12 says this, So the law is holy, 
and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? There's the second question. He says, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, namely the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It's as if the law amplifies the darkness of sin. Be on your guard if you talk about sin in the way that we as Christians so often talk about our sin. Well, I'm struggling a little bit. I've got a few growth areas. I've got some weaknesses over here. I've said every one of those phrases. But what happens is this. We could talk about a growth area and kind of take sin's wickedness, power, and destructive force and shrink it into a little manageable action figure that we can handle. Friends, sin isn't out for blood. Sin is out for death. And until we can get in our nostrils the utter and absolute stench of sin, we will not wage war on it. Do you know the Bible never tells you to manage sin, cut down on sin, begin to make allowances to kind of chill out with the sin? It says, kill it, wage war on it. The language is so strong because sin is so destructive. Imagine for a moment that you have a rapist as a roommate in your spare bedroom. You do not celebrate and make joy that that person's making strides. You make war on getting that person out of your home for the protection of you and your family. Let's say that you have cancer in your body. You don't sit there and sort of say, well, I'm good with it being there. Let's just keep it under control. You get it out of there because we've all known someone who's been touched by cancer. We wage war on it. The overarching collective message of these four things is this. If you kind of pull back and look at this, here's one of the great powers of the law. You ready for it? It's this. The great power is that it drives us to our knees and shows us our need for a Savior. If you spend time in God's Word, I plead with you, read it for yourself. If you're struggling and don't know where to start or don't know how to continue, talk to a brother or sister in the room and say, help! No shame in that. Pure joy in that. Yes, let me help you feed on this. Where we're going at the end of the chapter, Paul asks this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? (laughs) If you get around the law, what you see is your deep and desperate and ongoing need of a Savior. And that's a great place to be. It's an amazing place to be. If you want to have a soft heart towards God's love, read God's law. If you want to be re-amazed at the amazing, wonderful grace of God, stay in the book. And you will see, man, God, you loved a sinner even as much as me. The law does this. Let me invite the band to come on up right now. Let me quickly give you something that I think will be just sort of a a handle for, for your week. We're all tempted in many ways. The one who says he's not is a total liar. So we're all tempted. So we're all on equal footing there. I've got these verses in your notes. But number one, don't blame God for temptation. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Resist the urge. That's sin. Secondly, don't forget God in temptation. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, listen to this, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If you commit one verse to memory this week, you chew on that one. God will bring that verse up, and he'll say, there's your escape. Take it. Number three, run to God after temptation. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Do you hear how handled with caution this thing is around sin? Man, as you go to reach down to help a brother or sister out, you better be on firm footing. You better have other people around you. Sin will swallow you whole. It's out for death. And lastly is this. Receive the help of Jesus. Hebrews 2 talks about our high priest. For he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, that is glorious good news to let your mind sit on this morning. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to sing a couple of songs right now. And in a few moments, you're going to have an opportunity as a church to just sort of call out some truth. And here's where I want to center our brains this morning. We're going to have a little ode to the law time. And your sort of songbook for this is Psalm 119. If you open your Bible almost to the dead middle, you'll find it. It's the biggest chapter in the Bible. And in Psalm 119, you will see these kinds of words that identify the Holy Scriptures. Law, commandments, testimonies, precepts, word, promise. Why does a parent unendingly give instruction and boundaries and congratulations and stay backs? Because we love our kids. God has not left us to wonder. He's left it in a book. He's written it down. It's so important. So open up to Psalm 119. After a couple of songs, I'll come and lead us, but just I want you to stand up and just read a sentence or two, just a verse or two that kind of stands out to you. And let's hear the glories and power of God's law. Let's sing. Glorious Heavenly Father, you love us. And you've given us um, instruction and commandments and precepts and statutes that are unchanging, that are established. God, I thank you. Um, Just evidence of your Holy Spirit at work that we would delight in your law, that we would find it good. God, it's just confirmation that you have possessed us. You indwell us, Holy Spirit. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that we just sang about. Father, just now as we sing about your love, we include and celebrate your words that guide us, God. Not not bars to keep us from from fun, but a guardrail to keep us alive and point us to life. Help us, God, to walk on your path and not to stray. God, as we worship you with our mouth, we worship you with our giving this morning as well. We thank you, God, for the incredible people that are helped in the ways that you're expanding ministry, Lord, not just in this church, but in churches around this valley. I pray, God, that we would be great stewards of all that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.